live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, a pleasant evening to everybody across the world. I'm Rob Starr, along with, on the side here, our acclaimed, distinguished, illustrious, preeminent, renowned, and extraordinary co-host, Mr. Chris Davey. Hi, Chris. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rob. It's nice to uh, to have so many uh, you know adjectives in front of my name there. You, I think you make them up, man. You get word of the day or something? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that everything I said is true, so I, I, I am very proud to work side-by-side side with you. I'll tell you that. That's fantastic. I'm right back at you, Rob. So, so what's new out in uh, in the California world? Like an absolute pendulum swing in terms of temperatures. I was just saying yesterday at this time, 6 o'clock at night, it was 85 yesterday, 55 today. Take Put that in your smipe and poke it. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, 87 degrees here. It's 76 now here in Arizona, but it says scheduled down to 56 later this evening. So um, we get our ups and downs, and uh, we got to live with it. So that's the way it is. We're already at one degree below <coughs> your overnight low. So, and I don't think you're going to get the precipitation that's coming here to SoCal. Uh, I don't think it's going to mosey on over to Phoenix. It's going to stall right over the. Um, oh. Excuse me. Lower Sierras uh, and San Gabriel here, and not get to you. No, well, we we need water too. So, but speaking of water, the person I we turn to can give us all the best and updated California water news is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, guys. Hope you're doing okay. Yep, we are now at your board. <coughs> well, up here in Northern California, it's been a cool day cloudy. We did get some, uh, you know, some precipitation. We're getting uh, some snow in the mountains, but uh, not a lot. And and so far, the snow has been over, and I believe the Cascade Range over closer to the coast. It really hasn't made its way into, uh, into the mountains. It's supposed to go into the Sierras, I think, tonight, maybe tomorrow. Uh, but again, we're not looking at a lot of snow. Uh, a couple inches is best. Um, right, I guess I guess the word is skimpy, skimpy, skimpy. Oh yeah, the snow survey was this this week, and yeah, you know, we all knew it was going to be bad. You know, it's uh, it's just amazing the whip the weather whiplash that they call it that we've been having. You know, like October. Last October was the wettest October on record, and then November is one one of the driest Novembers on record, and then we had record-breaking precipitation in December, and then, you know, January dry, record yep. dry, I believe. February will also be, you know, really, really dry. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll get, uh, hopefully, you know, we, there's still, I can tell you, there's still a few more months left in the season. And so we, we don't really know what's going to happen, um, but it's not looking good. It's really not looking good. And well, you know, it, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No. It, and it looks like it's going to be staying dry. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a big, big reversal of what we're ha- what we're seeing here in the drought and in Australia with their floods. Oh yeah, there was an article in the L.A. Times today about uh, uh, La Nina and how climate change with La Nina is amplifying droughts and floods. And you know, we're having a drought uh, here uh, in the southwest area of the country, uh, Europe is having some really drought times. Uh, I think Portugal got 7% of their precipitation. Um, And Africa as well is having a hard time, uh, a drought. Um, And then in the Southern Hemisphere, we have have Australia just getting pounded by rain. And, you know, this is something that they're seeing that's becoming more amplified with climate change, you know, with the La Ninas. And we're getting, seem to be getting a lot more La Ninas. And, oh, and also we can have increased hurricane activity too. So, you know, lots of fun associated with La Nina. I I heard they had an ungod amount of rain was like, I don't know if I'm I'm correcting this, it was like 31 inches. Am I close to that or? I did not see or recall in the um in the uh, a, a quote on how many inches of rain in Australia here and there but but I do know it's like substantial. It's like raining and raining and raining and not stopping and there's just a lot of flooding all over the place. So it probably could be, you know. And and this is the kind of uh flooding that also has happened here in California. Um, back in 1861, <laughs> the big flood that we all talk about, you know, it, 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 like it rained literally every day for, you know, six months, eight months, I don't know, some people even say a year. And uh, Sacramento was completely flooded. And this is before, you know, we had levees or anything to uh, any kind of flood protection, really. And uh, the governor, the governor uh, Leland Stanford, he was uh, set to be inaugurated, and he had, to, he had to row a boat into Sacramento, and he was <laughs> inaugurated on a boat um, in <laughs> Sacramento. Uh, and they actually had to move the state capitol, I believe, to uh, San Francisco for six months while they waited for, you know, things to drain out. Uh, so, you know, California also has had a history of this, this flooding, uh, you know, and rains that just don't stop. Uh, same with Southern California. So, you know, it, it could be us. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be a good thing. But, uh, I remember when the drought hit, uh, you know, the 2005, uh, six, seven areas or eight, I remember the exact year, uh, I was up at the uh, state capitol and, I, you know, they turned all the water off on, on the lawn and, man, it looked it looked bad. I mean, it was like all almost dead grass everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of rolling into probably, you know, a little bit that this year if things don't improve. Uh, you know, farmers are, they also recently, I think last week, announced the water allocation for the Central Valley Project. That's the federal project that supplies most of the farms in the Central Valley and the Sacramento Valley as well. And for 
you know, those water contractors south of Delta, which is the San Joaquin Valley, again, uh, they're getting no water, 0% allocation. And, you know, one of the things that they tell you is that um, they have to make payments for, you know, for the system. Uh, they don't... You know, they don't get a break because they're not getting any water because those are bond, paid for by bonds and, and bond payers need, you know, bond. People give the bonds need their money, too. So, um, you know, it's kind of ironic. Uh, but, you know. So, yeah, there's no water for farmers in the San Joaquin Valley this year. Groundwater is becoming ever more restricted with uh, the implementation of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And Mother Nature is not helping us out very much here. So yeah, let's talk about the snowpack too, Chris. I mean, the northern, the northern Sierras, Central Sierras, no, skimpy snowpack, not getting the sort of uh, snows that they usually get. Great uh, November, great no uh, December snows, but since then it's been puny at best. Yeah, it's just it's just drying up all over the place. Uh, it's it's really oh, disappointing. And, and you know, just to the north of us, I do believe even perhaps as we speak, British Columbia and Washington are getting hammered by an atmospheric river. <laughs> so, like, you know, serious, they're getting all our precipitation, you know. So. Time to build a tunnel. <laughs> Well, you got to have water to put in the tunnel, so, yeah. you know. Well, look at, tell us what's going on with Lake Powell. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lake Powell is set to uh, get hit a record low, and, and uh, this this is a big deal, not so much for us down here in California uh, and even perhaps Arizona and Nevada, but for the upper basin states that, you know, share the Colorado River up above um, Utah, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, I think. No, no, Arizona, you're in, you're in the lower basin. But those states, uh, according to the compact, they, there's a certain amount of water that they have to, that Lake Powell has to send down to Lake Mead. And when things get to a lower level than you know, it could mean that uh, people in Colorado and other states might have to release water from their reservoirs to, you know, buffer up Lake Powell. Uh, and that has already happened once this year. It may be happening again. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> it, it, it just shows the continued decline of the Colorado River Basin. It used to supply, you know, seven states and Things are just getting worse, and when these uh, when these uh, reservoirs drop below a certain level, then it can also affect hydropower. And Lake Powell and Lake Mead have been really providing essential hydropower to the southwest, uh, including you know Metropolitan's Colorado River Aqueduct and other places. Uh, you know a lot of if you're in the Southwest and you everyone starts slipping on their air conditioners, then generally they're 
going to the hydropower and, and starting the hydropower uh, because you you can't start up a uh, start up a turbine that creates electricity just you can't just start it up and start it and turn it off it's not much more complicated than a car but with hydropower you can you 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 know you just open the gate the water goes down you have electricity instantly and then when you don't need it anymore you shut the gate it instantly it turns off and, you know these turbines that turn to create electricity they it doesn't go that quickly and so it's an important power source uh you know for the southwest and, and for for a lot of people so you know we'll see so do you think they need to do you think they need to develop with all these different dams and such instead of letting the water out in into the bays and the ocean that they got to find some other storage areas for these things? Well, you know, it it's not it it I don't I don't think that the answer is that we're not going to ever let water flow out to the ocean. Um it in the California Delta, there is a, the there is a, a connection from the Delta to the ocean to the bay, and right. so there's always a certain amount of water that has to be released to keep the salinity out of the Delta. Because right. if the salinity gets into the Delta, then we can't drink that water, and the farmers can't use the water. So actually, you know, in these times of drought. Uh, there's a, actually an amazing amount of cooperation that comes between uh, the farmers in the Delta and the water agencies and all. So, because uh, everybody loses if we lose control of salinity into the Delta. And, you know, the Delta feeds into the San Francisco Bay, and that's an ecosystem that needs some fresh water, too. And you know, we just can't not, not say that we're never going to let water go out to to the ocean. And in the Colorado River, uh, I think pretty much every drop does get used. The, Cal the Colorado River Delta is pretty much dry, and they did they have done some pulse flows, sending you know once or twice a year, on some years down to the Delta, to the Colorado River Delta, but it's in no way, you know, in any kind of uh, good shape. It's, you know, it's been dried up. Well, I, I know yeah. going back and forth to California uh, by uh, the 10 freeway over when you, you get, you cross California from Blythe into Arizona, and they have a landing site for, for boats to launch. And I can tell you, for the last couple of months, it is so shallow you can't put boats in there. Oh yeah, I I, I can imagine. You know, it's uh, it's it's tough on the Colorado River, and it's not going to get any easy there anytime soon. You know, if ever. Yeah, if no, ever. Not, not even. A, and this is for Chris Davy. Chris, not even a, a kayak can go in there. It's just all you see is the bottom dirt. In spots, it's it's really wow. down to the nimblest. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you know that's a that's a scary thought. So hey, Chris Austin, maybe we can switch over and talk wildlife a bit here, right? Because I did see 
actually two stories on Maven's Notebook this week. One about uh, how wildlife managers are really ex- putting, you know, extra uh, breeding extra salmon in the hatcheries this year. And and you think about the other story, which said, you know, the drought is killing wild fish, right? Wild salmon. So they seem to be polar opposites. But when you read the story, you learn that that the extra production of salmon is because so many of the eggs that were laid uh, by the naturally uh, wild river, by the uh, natural wild run of salmon, you know, didn't make it. They didn't survive the drought, right? So in order to do that, the hatcheries are increasing uh, hatchery production to to cover the loss from from the natural fish eggs not surviving the drought. Am Am I on the money with that? Yeah, yeah. Although you know, we should we should say you know should point out that uh, hatchery fish are are actually very different than the wild fish, and we've tried forever to keep a uh, wild fish population as well as a uh, um, as well as a hatchery uh, population, um, and it's. Just not looking good for the wild fish population there. The winter run Chinook, which are you know below Shasta Dam. Um, so yes, and so they're trying to boost production to make up for this. They're you know they grew they grew more fish. They're releasing them. Also, um, um, I don't know. I think about four to six months ago, they also. Made a, they decided they were going to boost hatchery production because uh, salmon are an important part of the killer whale diet, the orca diet. And so in order to boost them, because the orcas are not doing well, then all the West Coast uh, hatcheries are producing more salmon with the hope that there'll be more salmon in the ocean for the whales. So we'll see. If that happens, um, and also another interesting thing that I should say um, is the Department of Fish and Wildlife, I believe, is uh, funded a new project to take the salmon that are in the river, the wild fish population, winter run Chinook. If, if I'll, I'll say if there's any left. Uh, but they're they're going to start a program where they're going to reestablish them up above uh, Shasta Dam um, in the McLeod River, and above Shasta Dam, the water temperatures are a lot cooler, and there it will really help with the survival of the species. Um, but I I I think that these trap and release programs are uh, are really difficult. (laughs) It's easy enough to to get them up to the river, the adults up to the river and have them spawn in the river. It is a much different task to catch the baby salmon before they go into the reservoir. Uh, and the idea is, you know, you're good. They have this device that they're going to put in the river um, and and the salmon will get caught by the device, and they'll put the baby salmon in the truck and tra- drive the truck down to below Shasta Dam and release the the fish from there. Uh, we'll see how that works. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, Chris. 
because I've learned a lot. Um, you know, I'm an avid, uh, avid outdoorsman. Fishing is a part of that. Um, that there's a, you know, there's a ton of difference between the fish populations, including salmon, right, north and south of uh, the central, uh, the central valley, because you know the fish that are that are way up in north, the winter run chinook salmon, as you were just mentioning about Shasta and Sacramento River and all that kind of stuff, are different from from the fish that spawn in you know the more southern uh, uh, rivers, right? So. Uh, it's not, it, you know, the Klamath and all that kind of stuff are different than, than southern rivers. And those fish, um, the northern fish, are the ones that populate the ocean salmon population, um, where the southern ones are more, you know, the river fish. So it's just interesting to, to, to know it's just not one kind of salmon, Chris. It's a lot. Oh, yeah. And actually, uh, on these rivers, they do try to keep them... Uh, the populations uh, separate. Uh, the the wild fish, you know, the wild salmon will go out to the ocean and they will come back and they will go to their exact streams that they were born on. It's actually one of the most amazing things about salmon. Um, and so, and hatchery fish, if they're released into the river, in the then they'll they'll know to go to that river. But what they do with the hatchery fish in the drought years is that they they don't put them into the river. They put them in a truck and they truck them down to the edge of the delta and they dump them into the delta there. And, and that is to help because, you know, perhaps the river conditions are so poor that they don't want to put them into the, into the river. So they take them down to the delta. But then when those fish come back, they don't know where to go. And so they literally go everywhere. And, you know, hatcheries, actually, they they know this. And they they, they will separate the fish that come in that don't belong from that particular river. They're tagged. Um, or if they're otherwise unsure, they'll actually genetically test the fish before they'll use those eggs. And they'll move them back to whatever hatchery they're supposed to be at. Um, But it really becomes a mess. The reason why they try to keep these things so distinctly separate is because genetically, you know, you don't want these, you don't want these, things to mix. You don't want to homogenize the population. You want to keep them, you know. No so, yeah, we're, you know, with, with salmon, it's, it's very, you want to keep them separate. You want to keep them, you know, each run genetically uh, strong and diverse. So salmon, there are an amazing, an amazing creature. Absolutely. Well, one, one last story that got my eye, eye was uh, a gentleman, a water manager from Tulare Irrigation District. Uh, I think his name is Aaron Fakudo. And I guess he's frustrated about the discussions that in Sacramento that's going over about reforming water rights. Yeah, um, there was a uh, report that came out. They brought together some lawyers together, uh, legal minds to kind of take a look at California's water rights and and how could they how might they be updated for you know to incorporate climate change and 
he's not happy with that because he thinks like th- there were some recommendations they had, I think, for, for, you know, to open up more water rights for fully appropriated streams and, <coughs> excuse me, um, and, and other things. You know, he says, um, what did he say here? Oh, the problem with the white paper, he said, is the authors have never, <coughs> excuse me, Excuse me. He says the authors have never managed a molecule in their life. So. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I like that. Sorry, my something stuck in my you, throat. You, you don't have oh, you don't have a touch of the COVID, do you? <laughs> oh no, no, no. Good, good, good. We don't want you sick. <laughs> hey, Chris. What? So, so what should we be watching out for? on uh, California Water News for the upcoming week. Anything we should keep our eye open for? Well, I think that that, uh, following the snow survey comes uh, revision of the state water project allocation. Um, They started out with an allocation that was based on priority needs of, of the water contractors. And then after December, when we got all the snow, they raised it to 15%. And now we'll see um, if that 15% holds. I, I'm going to predict that they're probably going to move it down, uh, but we'll see. So I imagine that may be coming tomorrow or next week. Something to look forward to, I guess. But well, we're we're coming up against our commercial break. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today and giving us an update on the California water news. For our listeners, uh, please go to mavensnotebook.com. You can become a subscriber like Chris, uh, Davey, and I are. We get the water news update every single morning on our computers when we get up. Um, and you can also become a, a, a supporter of that as well. So don't forget, go to www.mavensnotebook.com, and you'll you'll know more than we know every single day. So thanks, Chris. We will see you and talk to you next week. You have a good good week, and uh, hope your throat gets cleared. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Chris. All right, we're going to take a little commercial break, and we'll be back with our featured guest. His name is uh, Dr. Mark Gray, and uh, an exciting person to talk to and a very knowledgeable one. I'm kind of jealous. He's He's a very smart guy. So uh, stick around for the second half. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy to understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician. 
Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. Love you, love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and you can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. K C. A. A. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone. I'm your host, Chris Davy, here in my home studio in Southern California, along with Rob Starr, my co-host, who's at his small studio in Arizona this evening. We hope you're having a great evening. Thanks for joining us. We have a great guest on the second half of the show. We're going to talk a little bit about environment, environmental issues and water storage and stormwater. And we're going to be speaking to Mark Gray. Now, Mark is the Director of Environmental Affairs at the Building Industry Association of Southern California. He's also the Principal Technical Director for the Construction Industry Coalition on Water Quality. And in these roles, Dr. Gray... He directs all the education, the research, the advocacy programs, all on behalf of the building industry in, in here in California. And their primary focus is on water quality and water supply reliability. Yeah, let me add a little bit more about Dr. Gray. He's worked in the fields of water and air quality research and regulatory affairs for the past 30 years in the Pacific Northwest in California. And before he joined the BIA of Southern California, and directoring uh, and, and um, uh, being the director of construction industry coalition on water quality, uh, Dr. Gray operated his own consulting practice and was director of technical services for Sinagro Technology, the nation's largest organic waste recycler. Uh, Dr. Gray holds a PhD in soil chemistry, a master of science in forest ecosystem analysis from the University of Washington, Seattle and a Bachelor of Arts in English from Eastern Washington University in Cheney, Washington. So, Dr. Gray, welcome to the Washington. Rob and Chris, hello. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Great. Good evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the, the kind introduction, and I uh, it's great to talk to you. And it was a great last session on salmon, uh, something near and dear to my heart. Uh, well, just so awesome. people, people know, I've known you for too many years. <laughs> 
Uh, right. We on the, on the BIA and, and a lot of the projects that they've done. But uh, I totally respect you as a, a representative of the Building Industry Association and your technical prowess that you bring to it. Uh, but one of the things I know our listeners always like to, to, to know, and we start off with, how and why did you enter into the business you are today, into the building industry? How, what, what, made, well, what motivated you to get? Well, that's, that's a good question. And uh, what I did, I, uh, my training was in organic waste recycling and where my university training was focused. And that was real specific and somewhat narrow in scope. And in 2006, I changed uh, jobs and to representing the building and construction industry in water quality regulatory affairs and running that organization that you mentioned uh, in the introduction, the Construction Industry Coalition on Water Quality, and doing the technical direction to advocacy and our research programs in California. And it was, uh, and I think a lot of maybe people on, on, you know, who are listening can relate. It was just a bigger opportunity and more room to grow professionally. So I jumped, I jumped at doing it. And it's been a, just a, uh, it's been a great ride. I started in 2006 and I'm uh, going strong here in, in 2022. Oh. And uh, keep, oh, go ahead, Chris, ask some questions. Yeah, no problem, Rob. Thanks. I appreciate it. I was just going to say you know, for our, for our listeners, maybe what we can, uh, ask you to do is kind of give us, you know, a little view of what the Building Industry Association is, also known as the BIA. You know, what's its main function? What does it, uh, what does it provide as, uh, as an organization? Yeah, great. Well, well, uh, on the in terms of the function of the BIA, the Building Industry Association, it's real simple. We advocate. The BIA advocates for home building in California, all types of, you know, all types of home building in California. And as, a, as an association, it's a trade association. And again, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with trade associations. Dentists have trade associations. Uh, waste haulers and organic recyclers have trade associations, right? So there's a, a lot of different kinds of trade associations. And we advocate uh, on behalf of our membership, which is about 1,000 uh, members strong. And there's really a couple core functions, and that's business networking helping people do business with each other and other people who are involved in the building industry and, and in local government, and then also uh, doing government affairs, uh, such as legislative analysis, uh, regulatory policy, regulatory rulemaking, uh, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, all, and then a, you know, a host of types of environmental uh, regulatory rules and, and laws, and that's where our government affairs team comes in, kind of on the legislative political side and then the regulatory uh, and uh, policy side, and that's, and that's generally where I work. And one other thing, and Chris, I'll, I'll mention, is the, yeah. the group where I drive most of my funding for my position at BIA um, is called uh, Construction Industry Coalition on Water Quality, and we're a 501c6, which is a, 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 tra a group of trade associations, and our purpose is advocacy, education, and research on water quality and water supply reliability issues here in Southern California. And that's, there's five, I won't mention all the trade associations, but they work on public and private projects throughout Southern California. And we're funded by construction contractors and home builders and their union labor workforce. So I'm in a really great position in that I get to represent, you know, management and labor and then also uh, to, to close out, I'm super fortunate in that our members, you know, have a, a, a network of 
you know, the different consulting uh, groups and types in planning, in land planning and development, environmental science, engineering, uh, you know, things of that nature. And I'm able to bring the, those very best experts together, collaborate, and, and find the best solutions for the building industry. So I'm, I'm really blessed to work with great people. And I've, Rob mentioned we've, we've worked a long time together on educational programs for water in Southern California, and it's just one of the the roles I really relish is, is to being able to is to be able to bring people together to find you know solutions for construction and and housing. And you know, just to inform our listeners, where where you guys are having a, a symposium coming up in August, maybe you can just kind of mention that and give a, a, a well. Great. I Rob, thank you so much for mentioning that because I want to. I, I definitely want to make sure your your listeners know, know about this. For the better part of the last 15 years, uh, the BIA of Southern California and our Baldy View chapter, which principally works out in the San Bernardino area in the high, San Bernardino County area, both the uh, down in the Santa Ana River area and then up in the up in the high desert area, and we have been doing a, uh, a, a producing. Uh, a water conference that brings together the very best local and statewide experts on water supply reliability every year in August. And our conference this year is on Friday, August 12th. It'll be at the Doubletree in person uh, at the Doubletree Hotel in Ontario, near the Ontario airport. And just quickly on that, uh, what we really like to do is focus on, you know, the top issues for th- th- that are going on each year and really drill down on those with a uh, with a with an eye on how it affects building and land development and it's also a major collaboration we do with local water agencies and districts such as Inland Empire Utilities Agency Mojave Valley Water District and if I don't mention everybody out in the area I, I apologize but those are just a couple you know uh, that, that that we work with and so we bring that we bring, we have a, a planning committee. We bring together a, a quite an agenda each year. It's a half-day conference, jam-packed with information. And just uh, as an example, last year I, I moderated a panel where we where we looked at the very latest in landscape architect designs for zero water landscapes. We looked at a home builder's perspective on how they secure long-term water supplies. This is a large statewide and national uh, home builder who they've spent a lot of time working on long-term water supply planning. And, and then we also cover a lot of legislative and legal issues um, as well. So this conference, just to end it, I, I, I could go on longer, but we, it's just, it really brings together a lot of you know, top professionals working on California water issues. And this year, um, gosh, Rob, as you know, there's no end in topics. The, the ongoing drought obviously is a, is a big issue. Uh, maximizing storage in our state is a big issue and here locally maximizing uh, how we're doing stormwater capture which also augments water supplies will be a big issue as well and there and, and along with along with many others so thanks for asking about that and that's a real uh, it's a, it's a very educational event oh you're most welcome and from the beginning the company we work for the Toro company has been a long-term sponsor of that event and uh, Chris and I have been there and attended and I also had uh, been on a moderator in a couple panels over the years, so uh, we we love doing that stuff, and it's it's a great way to get stakeholders and people with more knowledge in water to come out and give their opinions and tell us what they know. So, 
Well, right, well, and the thing, well, and and the to add, and thanks for I'm glad you mentioned Toro and, and the other spot, uh, you know, private businesses and folks like you have a connection to the everyday work world, right? Um, some of us, I, I I float between, you know, the policy level and government affairs and companies and uh, and and but don't touch the you know the citizens and the people working every day and having folks like you and other companies who do that make sure we're you know what we're doing is grounded in reality right because if you're not doing that and bringing the right people together at these conferences and educational events you're just talking to yourself and that's okay. not a good uh, that's that's not a that's not a good outcome no uh, Chris going to throw some questions out well, I was going to say, you know, we've talked a lot about who you work with and kind of functionally what um, what you do, but maybe maybe another th way to look at it is is you know kind of get into the issues that you deal with, right? As uh, as an auspices of the building industry, what kind of what are the top issues that uh, that the BIA is involved with? Yeah, well, the, and and some of them go a little bit; they relate to or go beyond water. But but I'll I'll cover those. That's a that's a good question. And um, the the number one issue r really on our on our agenda is um, is building three million homes during Governor Newsom's tenure, <laughs> which which uh, he laid down the edict that we need to build three million plus new homes. And so our industry is is laser focused on trying to do that. In you know, in probably one of the most strict states in the nation, when it comes to uh, you know rules and regulations on building housing, um, and I I work every day in, in that arena and can speak to that. Um, number two, it's it's we're as an industry working real hard to meet the greenhouse gas reduction goals and complying with the California Air Resources Board and local air boards restrictions on where housing can be built. And there's a big intersection there with local planning and CEQA and how that's evolving over time and the change in how uh, how our tax structure works through gas taxes. Um, because with more electrification, there's less fuel tax. And so there's there's it has some major implications. The, the, the meeting the greenhouse gas reduction goals has major spillover. And our advocacy group, others that I work with in our organization, spend a lot of time on that. And number three is what we're talking about today, and that's improving water quality and increasing water supply reliability and what we what we can do at the building industry to make a difference and ensure that we've got, you know, sustainable water supplies for for, for us and, and our families in, in, in the years to come. So those are those are really the, the big three, you know, environmental related issues and that, that, that we're dealing with right now. You, uh, your organization has uh, some advocacy, excuse me, some advocacy programs that you you highlight. Maybe you can uh, touch on some of those that you do. Yeah, you bet. And, and with the way we're organized to tackle, and this relates to the previous question, uh, the way we're organized to tackle information, we have a government affairs group, um, and part of it covers local and state uh, uh, political action and legislative affairs. And they work both in Sacramento and, and down here in Southern California locally uh, on individual races uh, in, in cities, uh, you know, the assembly and Senate districts, and, and then, uh, you know, state, state, statewide as well. And then we have a legal advocacy group called the Building Industry Legal Defense Foundation. And I work closely with that group on certain water quality topics that 
move into the legal arena like Clean Water Act uh, enforcement and Clean Water Act compliance. And our, our legal app, the build is a long, has been around for 30 plus years and really does a great job representing the building industry. And then finally, the, our advocacy group, we've got a couple that I mentioned are through our uh, industry fund partnership. We have the Construction Industry Coalition on Water Quality, where we advocate for water quality issues on, on behalf of building and construction. And then we have a sister organization, a companion organization called the Construction Industry Air Quality Coalition that focuses, as I said earlier, like on greenhouse gas issues, construction vehicles, uh, diesel regulations, air quality in particulate, things of that nature. So our, we, we've got some... Because the issues, and as your listeners who, who care about water and care about development and the environment know, there's just a lot of different uh, topics and a lot of different subject areas that you have to cover if you're going to do business in California uh, that, that crosses a lot of different environmental boundaries, right? Uh, transportation, water, and, and air quality being, you know, three, three big ones. True. Agreed. Agreed. Hey, so Mark, let me let me kind of just you know I'm going to jump right into you know the <laughs> one of the bigger subjects here, and it's de definitely a big subject in California, and that's water storage itself. I heard you yeah. mention it. Just a I'm little, glad you brought yeah, that up. A little bit. Yeah, just a little bit earlier in there. So I want for our listeners to see if we can connect the water storage issues that that the state is facing. Right. I mean, the water in the dams released into the ocean and bays and how do we get it into other storage locations? And just maybe you can help our listeners understand how that's connected to um, home development, right? What's the, how does that look for the future? Or does it, does it look good? Does it hamper the future of home development in our state? Yeah, right. right. Let, me, let, me, let me start there. Right. Let me start with that. And then uh, I'll see if I can, and if there's a little follow-up. Uh, that, that that might help uh, clarify it for the listeners. But, you know, you bet. When, in terms of building and what we look at with water storage for us here in Southern California, let's put our Southern California hat on. To me, there's two, there's kind of two big buckets, and one of those buckets is divided into two sub-buckets, and, and that's the, the Central Valley Project and the, and the California Water Project, and then the, you know, the, the, Cali the Colorado River Aqueduct that brings imported supplies into Southern California. So that's one major, you know, supply that goes into water agencies planning for helping with growth and development in, in California. And as we all know on this call, this, that's under a lot of pressure, right? And climate change is affecting yeah. that. And I think what I want to say to your listeners in, in the short time we have, we're very supportive of the Delta Conveyance project, you know, building uh, what now will be a single tunnel to replace the the, the outdated conveyance system that exists today. So we are big supporters as an industry of that of that supply, and that will help with that will help with ensuring that we have sustainable supplies for our grandkids, right? But it's not everything. And where I'm going to transition into is what are we doing locally here in Southern California? What are you, we doing out in the Inland Empire where this radio program is based? What are they doing in Orange County? What are they doing in Los Angeles? So. For your listeners, and, and one thing that we've been work, I've worked on since I started in 2006, and our Kickwick group was formed in 2001. We are huge supporters and believers, and, and the scientific evidence and facts back this up. But we're really big supporters of regional 
multi-benefit stormwater capture projects that take, that take runoff from existing urban areas, infiltrate it into the ground as appropriate, uh, and that does, and, and, in, and in the appropriate locations. And for your listeners, you know, we've got many areas in Southern California that are suitable for infiltrating runoff from our already developed areas and areas where we're redeveloping. And there is, uh, pun intended, a tidal wave of activity in that area. And we need to do all we can to get more urban stormwater runoff into the ground where it makes sense. And that, what that does, it does two things. It helps clean up the pollution that exists today because not, uh, new development these days is really water sensitive, right? But as you, I, Rob, I know you, I've known you for, we're both of the same vintage. You know, yep. when we came up in the, in the building industry, homes and developments weren't done the way they are now. A lot more water ran off. Right. But we, we've inherited a lot of that in Southern California. So to conclude, what, what we're really doing on storage for our advocacy and putting our research dollars as well there is what can we do to capture more urban stormwater at as big a scale as possible, when I mean scale, area that makes sense. And what that does is it helps augment our local water supply so that when we're in these drought years, like we, <laughs> which we seem to be perpetually in, yeah. that we're doing everything we can here locally to help build up, you know, a sustainable supply. So storage and capture, and, and if I have just one more, 15 more seconds, I also, for your listeners, there's also a great deal of work going on wastewater recycling, you know, from our homes, sewers, uh, and, and, and runoff, you know, wastewater from our homes and buildings. There is a tremendous amount of work going on. How do we better use that as well? And that's very exciting and yep. something we all, I think we could, will all benefit from as Southern Californians by doing everything we can to recycle our water. Do you, do you think that of potable water uh, with builders uh, going in for uh, landscaping thing, you, you think you'll see more of that in the future? Or Yeah, oh, without question. Yes, yes. Well, I think we'll see more. But you know what I think? In, instead of separate purple pipe, which when I came up in the, in, in the early 2000s, for people who know, I probably used a little jargon there, but there was a push to provide, you know, separate treated wastewater to homes and developments and business parks and the like. The, the trend now, uh, 15 years later, because of, of the great job we've done, that you at Toro have done and we've done in water conservation in Southern California, guess what? The flow, the amount, the volume of, run, uh, of sewer runoff that's going into our treatment plants has been reduced. So they have all this excess capacity that we can now use as a society that we've already paid for, both accepting dry weather flow, like when you have some excess irrigation runoff or rising groundwater, that water is collected and sent to the treatment plant. And then now when it rains, our treatment plants, because we've done such a good job on water conservation, they got a little more room when it rains to accept urban stormwater. So we're seeing more public dollars and in infrastructure going into those kind of retrofits, and I, I'll, I'll say this on behalf of our building industry, we're, you know, highly supportive of that because we're maximizing the infrastructure that our taxpayers have paid for. Right. Oh, sorry, uh, Rob, let me, let me head in there. I'm just, you know, so 
So I, so I, you know, I know we're closing in on the time, but Greg, I, I certainly, I mean, Mark, rather, I'm, I certainly want to ask this question for you because I know that that a lot of builders are moving toward, you know, the smart home module, if you will, um, provide their customers with uh, uh, with like water sense products and Energy Star uh appliances and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I know these are attractive to home buyers, right? So. Um, how are you guys working towards supporting that model? Well, they are, and, and that's this. I'm glad, and when I prepared the question, I really appreciate it because this ties right in, and I'll conclude, I think, with the time. And this ties right back into our Southern California Water Conference. Last year, we had John O'Brien from Brookfield Residential Homes, and he gave a tremendous presentation on kind of what the consumers that are buying homes, what they're, what they're thinking, what they like, what they don't like, what, what he's seeing on, on that side. And we're seeing a lot of adoption, Chris, as you said, of, of these of, you know, low water use fixtures. I mean, it's just a given. And, and California Plumbing Code Title 24 you know, requires it. So we're seeing those throughout the homes, and, and they're having a difference, you know, showers, faucets, toilets. He did, you know, in their surveys, I mean, people, you know, we won't go, we won't dwell on this, but some people don't like low flow. I mean, they're, they're, they don't like those, that's their, uh, that's their biggest criticism. But they're very accepting of it. And here's the other thing I want your listeners and everyone, you know, we've got the smartphone in our pocket now. People love this connected home technology and it has advanced a long way and it's making a difference for their uh, outdoor water use. Uh, monitoring and some indoor water use. And the other thing that technology is doing that John pointed out to our group, it's helping with leak detection. And I know that's a, a, a kind of a minutia and people are like, going, what are you talking about? But the leak, leaks cause a lot of water waste. And having technology and real-time monitoring can really go a long way, in, and especially at a homeowner level, that you don't have problems. And it's really kind of low cost and simple now with our smartphones to monitor this. So we're seeing a lot of adoption of those products that you mentioned, partly out of code and partly because people want smart uh, smart things in, in their home. I, I think also that most people who buy homes always want to have a home that's comfortable to live in and that it's not going to put them in the bank, you know, to, uh, drain their bank accounts uh, to support the ongoing, you know, running of the home and you know yeah. for, for most people it's, it's their biggest investment that they got right and, and the other thing we have to be careful about doing and we're and, and we're making a shift is what we're leaving the homeowner with in the yard in terms of the outdoor landscape we're designing water-wise features in terms of you know roof runoff and downspouts and designing more you know for for homes, for stormwater to run off and percolate into the ground, and then yeah. we're you know you know we're we're also uh, you know providing uh, other amenities like zero landscape you know zeroscaping um, you know and other types of landscapes that aren't heavily water reliant, and that's a no, you're that's right. a. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM.